Good morning, Christ Prez. Our scripture reading today is 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 20, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm not going to read those verses, but if you'd like to pause this now and read them, I encourage you to do that before listening on. We are beginning a new series today in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. We'll be in these two books of the Old Testament up until Advent, mostly focusing on the stories of Saul and David and how they point us toward the true king we have in Jesus. And next week, I'll do a bit more to introduce the whole series. But this morning, I thought it'd be good to begin where 1 Samuel begins, long before Saul and David entered the picture. The story begins like a lot of stories begin. There once was a man. But very quickly, we discover that this isn't really a story of... Elkanah, it's the story of a barren and bereft woman named Hannah. And while it is her story, it's not only her story. It's also Israel's story, which means that it's our story too. Let's dig into this by looking at Hannah's pain, her journey, and her hope. The text says that Elkanah had two wives, which probably wasn't his best decision. You know, this never really works out well in the Bible. One wife, Peninnah, had children, but Hannah had no children. Twice we read that the Lord had closed her womb. Hannah is barren, and and this is a source of anguish for her. Now, some of you have experienced this pain yourselves. A deep desire for children combined with the inability to bear children. This is a pain that we don't often talk about very much in public. It's, it's often hidden and hushed, but the pain and sorrow of it is common and it's widespread and it can be devastating. To be barren in any culture can lead to confusion and anger and doubt and bitterness and a deep sense of hopelessness. To be barren in the ancient Near East was no exception, especially given that culture's view that, as Robert Alter, Alter puts it, A woman's one great avenue to fulfillment in life was through the bearing of sons. Now, why? Because children, especially sons, were essential to the economic well-being of a family. The more kids you have, the more laborers you have. The more kids you have, the more people you have around you to take care of you in your old age. One commentator writes that, in particular, the inability to have a son was the ultimate tragedy in the ancient world. A son was needed to become the heir of the estate and to carry on the family name. Hannah was barren. And if that weren't pain enough, Elkanah's other wife, Peninnah, was quite fruitful. The text refers to all her sons and daughters. Peninnah was the wife who could bear children. And for Hannah, that means more pain. Plus, it looks like Peninnah was kind of a jerk. (laughs) If you don't want to label her, you might say that she often acted in a jerk-like manner. We read in verse 6 that she would provoke Hannah grievously. It's more pain. We don't get the details of what the provocation looked like, but we can imagine uh, the basic message Hannah received. You're worthless. You're nobody. The text says that Hannah was deeply distressed and that she wept bitterly. In verse 15, Hannah describes herself as troubled in spirit. Literally, she describes herself as bleak-spirited. Verse 6 tells us that Hannah was irritated, and the word there means that she was um, 
caused to thunder, to rage. And in verse 7, we learn that this continued year after year. So this is more than a bad day. She needs more than a good night's sleep and a pep talk. Um, She regularly weeps. She does not eat. The overall picture we get of Hannah is of a woman barren, bereft, grieving, doubting, depressed, full of anger and bitterness. And she is anguished. There is a storm raging in her heart. Her life is not what she wants it to be. This is her pain. And while this is Hannah's story, it's also Israel's story. Barren and bereft, beset by enemies, constantly provoked. You know, the life of God's people is not what they want it to be. In the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Samuel follow right after Judges. And there we read again and again about how God's people are just spinning their wheels over and over again, failing to be faithful, failing to bear fruit. God's promises seem distant and unfulfilled. When we get to the end of Judges, we read this sobering line. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so we have to imagine that God's people are just wondering, when will God make good on his promises? How long will we have to wait? What about you? What about your pain? What are the ways your heart is storming and raging? This past week, a a pastor friend of mine forwarded me an article about how this summer has been a summer of rage, Uh, mostly having to do with our unfulfilled hopes around the pandemic. You know, we were hoping that by this time, life would be back to some kind of normalcy. But here we are still dealing with this. And and that has um, led to all kinds of little fears and anxieties and, and also all kinds of disappointments and even anger. And I wonder how your own hopes have been frustrated. I wonder where you carry profound doubt and sadness and anger and bitterness in your soul. Where are you barren and bereft? Where do you feel hopeless? In his memoir about his experience with depression, William Styron writes this, quote, Faith and deliverance and ultimate restoration is absent. It is hopelessness even more than pain that crushes the soul. Close quote. It's hopelessness even more than pain that crushes the soul. You know, first and second Samuel, they're about Israel's greatest king. But where does the story begin? Right here. In deep pain, in hopelessness, in bitter waiting, wondering how can a good future be possible when this is the situation? You see, family, this is inviting us in. If you have ever felt like Hannah, this story is for you. Well, let's look at Hannah's journey. What does she do with her pain? How does she deal with the waiting? It is a journey because we see that it it lasts years. And I I want to make it clear that by drawing attention to what Hannah does, my intent is not to discern some kind of formula in this ancient text. 
these aren't steps to follow to try to get our lives back on track. I don't think that's how the Bible works. Not really ever. But I do think that there's wisdom in how Hannah undertakes her journey. And it might be that what was wise for her is also wise for some of us. So let's ask the question and, and just notice, what does Hannah do with her pain? How does she handle her hopelessness and her waiting? First, she rises. Verse nine, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. It's not a wasted word, it's significant. It shows us that Hannah wanted to be healed. She wanted things to get better. Now you might think, well, of course she wanted things to get better. But you know this, so often we can say we want change and we can say we want healing. And at the same time, we can be utterly unwilling to do anything about it. And so some of us say we want to be less anxious, but we still spend significant time doom scrolling on social media every day. We say we want to be less anxious, but we still just have, you know, the network news on cable pumping into our living rooms day after day. Some of us say we want our city to be characterized by justice, but we never get past tweeting about it. Some of us say we want a closer relationship with God, but we we don't really ever undertake any of the actions that might nourish that relationship. Some of us say we want to see God's kingdom come in a particular area, but that desire isn't accompanied by any kind of sustained and persistent prayer. See, it's, it's one thing to want change, to want healing, and it's another thing to rise, to get up, to do something about it. Now, again, this is not a formula. I mean, we see Jesus bring change and transformation and healing to people in all kinds of different ways. But you remember one time we see him go to a man who has been sick for 38 years. And he asks this man, do you want to be healed? (laughs) What an extraordinary question that is. 38 years. We think, Jesus, of course this man wants to be healed. But sooner or later, you realize that there is a difference between wishing for healing in the abstract and really wanting it for yourself. We can say we wish things were better, but our actions show we actually prefer things just the way they are. Jesus tells this man, if you really want things to change, get up. Rise. You know, some of us have held on to our bitterness and doubt and cynicism and hurt for so long that those things have begun to define us. We refuse to let them go. I mean, who would we be without them? Hannah desires for things to get better, and she embodies that desire with action. She gets up, she rises. See, this is part of her journey. Well, next, we see that Hannah prays. You know, so often when we're facing deep disappointment and pain and, and, and hopelessness, our tendency is to turn inward. But that's not what Hannah does. She processes her pain with God. She stays engaged. 
This is so important. I mean, so often we treat negative feelings and emotions as obstacles to prayer. We think we can't go to God when we have this kind of storm raging in our hearts. We see doubt and anger and bitterness and hopelessness as a barrier standing between us and God. But family, these are doorways. These are entry points. Hannah shows us that these are not obstacles to prayer. They are occasions for prayer. She takes all of who she is and she brings herself before the Lord just as she is in prayer. She doesn't pray as the imagined person she thinks God wants her to be. She doesn't wait to be presentable. She doesn't wait until she feels like she has things together. She just prays as she is. She prays in her distress. She prays even as she weeps bitterly. Verse 15 tells us that she pours out her soul before the Lord. I mean, she is praying her very self. She pours out her life, not a fake life, not the life she thinks the Lord wants to see and hear, her actual life with all its anguish. And you see, family, this too is wisdom. The God of Israel is not a God who wants us to jump through prayer hoops. He doesn't need polite, tidy, well-articulated, coherent prayers. He is a God we can approach just as we are. He's a God who accepts lament and complaint just as much as he accepts praise and thanksgiving. He's as ready to hear about our hurts as he is to hear about our happiness. Hannah understood this. Israel understood this. Just read the Psalms. Do we understand it? We don't have to pray what we think God wants to hear. Our prayers can be messy. We're free to pray ourselves. We're free to pour our souls out before the Lord. This is part of the journey. And then we see next that Hannah worshipped. This is a real turning point for her. Listen again to verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now, a superficial reading of this sounds like what? It sounds like Hannah is bargaining with God. Give me what I really want and I'll make it up to you. I'll give you something in return. But no, look, there's something deeper happening here. See, Hannah is taking what would be to her the most precious gift, and she is demoting it in her heart, and she's putting God in that place. She's saying, any son you give me would not be mine, but yours. That's what this reference about the razor touching the head is about, uh, in the Old Testament, priesthood was hereditary. You, you could be a priest if you were part of a certain tribe. But there was a provision for others to be set apart for God for service by becoming Nazarites. And one of the signs of being set apart in this way was abstaining from haircuts. And so this is Hannah saying, um, if I have a child, it will be a Nazarite. You see, Hannah is taking all of the things that having a son would provide for her. Validation, joy, security, 
And she's just placing them before God. She's saying, this is in your hands. She's saying, all of my life, I've been asking for a son for me, but now I'm asking for a son for you. She's saying, you are more important to me than anything I might get from you. You see, family, it's not a bargain. It's a surrender. Hannah's heart is being transformed. And and that is worship, putting God first. See, having a son is no longer the most important thing. She's surrendering that dream to God. She's saying, Lord, your plans, your purposes are more important to me than my dreams and desires. So verse 19 tells us that they worshiped and then they went home. And then in due time, we're told, Hannah did conceive and she bore a son and she named him Samuel. And if you read on in chapter one, you'll see that she does, in fact, give him up to the Lord. But some of us might stop tracking at that point where she has the son because ah, it just feels so tidy, (laughs) maybe too perfect. You know, Hannah gets the son. And I want to ask, like, what about those of us who are still barren, right? Who are still in our pain, who are still feeling hopeless. See, in the Bible, all the barren women get their babies. But what about those of us who are still waiting? We think, well, yeah, of course, I'd worship too if I got the very thing I was asking God for. Of course the storm in my heart would quiet down and I'd have peace. But notice this. In the story, when does Hannah's peace come? When is the storm quieted in her heart? You see, it's not when she becomes pregnant. It's not when Samuel is born. It's when she rises and pours out her soul in prayer and worships. Verse 18 says, Then Hannah went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You see, at that point, what has changed in Hannah's circumstances? Externally, absolutely nothing. She's still not pregnant. She's still childless. But her heart is being transformed. She's still waiting but now she's waiting in hope. Not a formula, but do you see the wisdom in this? Well, last, let's look at Hannah's hope. At the beginning of chapter two, we get this song that Hannah prays. Commentaries point out that this song provides kind of an interpretive key for the rest of First and Second Samuel. It sets forth all the main themes of these books. It's not by strength that one prevails. We'll see this this theme um, displayed over and over again. The Lord brings low and he exalts. That's a theme we're going to see as we move through these books. God's true king is coming. And when he comes, the world will be turned upside down. Here's another theme. Now, remember, this is Hannah's story, but, but it's also Israel's story. And it's our story. So Hannah sings this song, and at least part of it on one level can be seen 
um, as a response of praise in light of the fact that God has answered her prayer and given her a son. But we don't have to read far to realize that this song really isn't primarily about Hannah at all because she's still waiting for so much of what she sings about. The song is primarily about the Lord. It's about who he is and what he does and what he will do. You see, the song becomes a prayer for nothing less than a revolution that will turn the whole world upside down, or if the world is already upside down, that will turn the world right side up. And so she does sing about the barren uh, bearing children, but she also sings about the hungry being fed and the poor being raised from the dust and the needy from the ash heap. She sings about the mighty being brought low and the weak being exalted and finding strength. She sings about adversaries and enemies being defeated. She sings about a God who brings perfect justice. And she sings about a king an anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. She sings even about one who can raise the dead up from Sheol. Do you know what the ultimate barrenness is? It's death. And our God is sovereign even over it. And he makes promises to hold us in love even through it. And so this is a song of hope that looks far beyond Hannah's circumstances to a God whose plan is to set the world right. See, Hannah's hope is rooted in this deep confidence that this is the God we're dealing with. Salvation is from this Lord. He's a God for the hopeless, the helpless, and the defeated. He's a God for the barren and bereft for the bitter and angry. He's a God for people with storms raging in their hearts. Don't you see, he's a God for you and for me. It's not Advent yet, but remember, for the church this side of eternity, it's always Advent. We're always waiting for our true King to come and to make things right. Family, wait in hope. In Jesus' name, amen.